From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All of the world leaders who are participating in the G20 summit have arrived. They are gathering on stage in Buenos Aires. And, you know, it's interesting because we're so focused on Xi Jinping meeting with uh, Donald Trump. But there's a lot of other things going on, including the fact that the U.S., Canada, and Mexico did just sign their new trade deal. And meanwhile, Mexico is about to get uh, its new president. Joining us now, Damien Sassauer, who heads up Fixed Income Emerging Markets Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Damien, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this agreement that was just signed and talk about its effect on Mexico in particular. Mexico, one of the hottest bets in emerging markets credit land, uh, which has failed again and again and has been struggling. So can you just give us a sense? Are they losing out here? Is it, are they, is it putting Mexico in an even worse position, even with everything else going on politically? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, Mexico has just taken it on the chin, right? And the peso is at some of the weakest levels we've seen in some time. And, and, and we happen to like Mexico at these levels, but, you know, there are some real issues. I mean, more domestic than related to trade at this point, I think, that's really kind of, you know, resonating in the eyes and the minds of creditors here in the U.S. And, and they have more to do with, you know, issues such as um, fees being charged by banks on, on households and on depositors, on Pemex, on the airport, which was recently voted down. I mean, these are all issues that have, quite frankly, a much bigger impact on asset valuations than, uh, than the trade agreement at this point. Damien, does the security situation in Mexico also have an effect on how investors interpret the potential for investment returns? Absolutely. Absolutely, Tim. I think sentiment has largely been driven by, um, you know, much of the, you know, really, the headlines coming out of the White House here in the U.S., right? And so, you know, you, while, you, while you can't really kind of hang your hat on it, yes, there's no question that sentiment's been impacted by that. And, um, and security is an issue, right? Because I think AMLO's on the record as saying he does not support a wall and he's not going to fund it. <laughs> I can imagine. One other aspect of the G20 meeting, which I find really interesting, is that it is being held in Buenos Aires in uh, Argentina. Argentina, of course, has had a very difficult period of time, uh, you know, after having gone back to capital markets after a long absence, uh, showing that it still is in financial uh, straits. Interestingly, though, the Argentinian uh, currency has actually been doing phenomenally over the past month. What's going on? 
Well, I think that's more, that's more technical on the heels of the IMF deal, but let me be very clear about this, Lisa. Argentina, and specifically the elections in the second half of le- next year, are the number one uh, exogenous risk facing emerging market creditors in 2019. Okay. I mean, if we have a return to, uh, I'm not suggesting, you know, Kirshner is going to be reelected, but a Peronist or something along those lines, um, which is very probable. I mean, I think the, um, the market's going to perceive that as really a very negative thing and end to the austerity measures that, uh, that, that Mauricio Macri has passed and, 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 and supports. And, and, and that would be really, really bad for, for Argentina and for its creditors, of which there is no shortage, given the fact cool. that Argentina, despite the sell-off, is still one of the biggest overweights in emerging market portfolios today. Wait, I, I want to pick up on something you said. You said that is the, the biggest exogenous risk facing emerging markets creditors, even more than China? Um, yes, and I'll tell you why. Because China is an investment grade uh, um, issuer, you know, so so spreads are not so wide, and and the risk of Chinese uh, of credit spreads in China really blowing out, given the size of that economy, is nowhere near that of you know high yield speculative single B rated Argentina, and 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 Argentina's impact on EM portfolios is, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, despite the fact that China, I mean, is 15 percent of, of of EM dollar debt, Argentina is not far behind it. <laughs> Argentina has issued a lot of U.S. dollar debt in the past three years. And so, yes, we believe that uh, that has more potential than China to move the needle. Now, that's, that's a direct impact. In terms of an indirect impact, clearly weakness in China and slower growth in China has an, a knock-on effect to the broader emerging markets, right? So, so from that perspective, I hear you. But, but in terms of a direct impact, uh, all eyes are going to be on that election as we head into 2019. Damien, I was under the impression that a stronger U.S. dollar would actually be better for emerging markets because it would make their commodities more competitive and their products and services more competitive. Is that off the table? Well, you know, you, you know, you're hitting on a nerve. I mean, we wrote that exactly to that point this week. We did a deep dive just yesterday on corporate credit fundamentals in emerging markets, and it's amazing what we found. We found that those um, those companies who basically have, um, you know, basically large U.S. dollar denominated inputs have really seen their credit fundamentals weaken here in 2018, which makes sense, right? Because they have to spend more money on whatever it is they, they, they whatever input uh, inputs they need to manufacture whatever it is they're manufacturing or or whatever the case may be, as we get into 2019, if we see the dollar begin to weaken, we should see those, those, those companies, the fundamentals underlying those companies turn more supportive. On the flip side, uh, commodity producers whose, whose output is denominated in dollars have done extraordinarily well, and from a fundamental perspective, look as good as they have in some time, and that's including all the large quasi-sovereign oil producers and, and, and some of the larger um, industrial metal producers. Thanks very much for being with us. Damien Sassauer is our chief emerging markets credit strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. This comes on a day when the G20 meeting opens in Argentina. It's coming after the family photo shoot with all the leaders lining up at the G20 meeting. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox along with Lisa Abramowitz. Pim, we talk a lot about 
how the FANG stocks or the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Google have such dominance over the entire stock market. Increasingly, these big companies are having a dominance over everything. And joining us now is someone who really talks about the consequences of that. Jonathan Tepper, I'm very pleased to say, is joining us now, founder of Variant Perception uh, in London. He also, he's in San Francisco today. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and author of a new book, The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. You highlight in a recent column, which is an excerpt of your book, uh, that the U.S.'s startup culture is fading and that this is a big problem. Why? So uh, what's interesting is over the last 20 years, we've seen uh, a rise in industrial concentration uh, across the board, and that means that there are fewer and fewer players uh, in uh, you know, particular industries, and it's not just the fangs, it's actually economy-wide. Um, and so if you look at the 20, uh, 20 years ago, we had twice as many uh, public stocks. So there's been a collapse in listings in the stock market. Um, we've also seen essentially a uh, collapse in startups, you know, in, uh, even including non-public uh, companies. So uh, every year, companies uh, die or exit markets. And when you have a collapse in startups, obviously, you know, if, if this were happening with uh, the population in the U.S., we'd be deeply alarmed and you know, this would be uh, dire for the future. But that's what's happening effectively in, in business. And so what's happening is that there are a few much bigger companies that now dominate a, a lot of uh, industries. The book, uh, The Myth of Capitalism, touches on the fangs, but this is actually happening in many other other industries as well. And so it's a, a broad-based trend in, in the U.S. economy. What is your theory for why this is happening? So the, the main reason is that in uh, it goes back to 1982 when Reagan uh, the, changed the merger guidelines, the Department of Justice and the FTC, and uh, basically gr- uh, mergers were, were given uh, green light. And, uh, you know, when every single stock market boom that we've had is, has created a merger wave. So we're now sitting here chatting in 2018, and we're essentially four merger waves in. And if you think about it, like the Sweet 16 or the World Cup, you know, you start with 16 players, get down to eight, then to four, then to two. And so what's happened is we've just had, uh, you know, um, competitor after competitor being eliminated. And so, you know, something like the U.S. beer market now, two companies control 90% of the beer um, Americans drink. And that's totally contrary to uh, the uh, antitrust uh, laws like the um, Sherman Act, uh, Clayton Act. And so essentially it's this wave of, of mergers and eliminating competition. Jonathan, there's an argument that the larger that a company is, the more efficient they can be, and they can actually offer lower prices to the consumer, which is a net win. Why is it a problem for there to be so much more concentration at the top? Sure. So that's the argument that's offered. Um, And uh, certainly when mergers are about to go through, they hire uh, K Street law firms and then uh, economists for hire, generally like Charles Rivers Associate and Compass Lexicon. But the evidence is overwhelming that uh, reducing the number of players actually leads to price increases. So, uh, you know, it's it's like New Year's resolutions. Companies, you know, say that they're going to get these synergies and they're going to pass them on to consumers. And as soon as the food shows up, they, uh, you know, decide to break the New Year resolution. And uh, the book goes into sort of dozens of studies where that's the case. And and so, uh, un- unfortunately, I think that the FTC and DOJ are do-nothing institutions and essentially broadly captured by um, the revolving door. And so there's there's no real challenge to uh, mergers, and you just end up with uh, higher prices. The more concentrated the industry in the U.S., generally the more, uh, the higher the price. It, so All right. So, Jonathan, if that's the case, what's the recipe f- for changing this? 
Certainly. So the, the, uh, simply analyzing the problem wouldn't be terribly helpful. Um, the, the last chapter in, in the book in, has some of these uh, proposals, but uh, basically the uh, sort of short answer is, one, uh, prevent further concentration, meaning that we shouldn't uh, allow mergers that reduce competition materially. Um, and uh, I, there's research pointing out that when you get below six players, prices tend to go up. And so I, I would say that you know if an industry is below six players, uh, let them compete. Don't let them merge. Um, I would also say that we have to break up previous mergers that have uh, reduced competition. Um, the world didn't end when Standard Oil was broken up, or AT&T. Um, the world won't end when we break up uh, current uh, monopolies. Uh, and then uh, the other uh, aspect I think that's very important is that regulation tends to act as a very strong barrier to entry. And unfortunately, what we have in the United States right now is uh, not uh, too much or too little regulation, but regulation essentially that serves the interests of companies that want to keep out competitors. So we definitely need sort of, uh, better, more principles-based regulation that has competition and new entrants as its key objective. I have to wonder what kind of responses you've gotten so far to this, because uh, it seems like there are a number of people talking about this now and, and probably more than, say, 10 years ago. Is that a correct statement? Uh, absolutely, and uh, I think that this has really started basically, um, you know, at least in entering the public consciousness, probably about t- two years ago. Um, I think that, it, uh, unsurprisingly, it was sort of at the end, essentially, of, the f- of, of a fourth merger wave. 2015 was a peak in, in, in mergers uh, for, for the U.S., 2017 and 18, uh, broadly, globally, have been peaks. Um, but, but clearly, people are now realizing that there's just a lot less competition. The reaction has been overwhelming, overwhelmingly positive. Um, you know, the people who have endorsed the book and uh, sort of praised the message of the book have been Nobel Prize winners like Serangus Deaton, uh, Mike Spence, uh, and then economists like Kenneth Rogoff and historians like Neil Ferguson. So I think this is a very big uh, subject. Um, and uh, when I talk to people, you know, at, at book events or, you know, just sitting at the airport randomly chatting with people, um, everyone recognizes their own industry as having less competition, you know, sitting next to uh, someone who works in hospitals. And 90% of U.S. Uh, hospital markets are highly concentrated. So it, it resonates in people's lives. I have to wonder, because we also had Tim Wu on, the, the Columbia professor recently, who was talking about a similar uh, type of idea. What kind of hope do you have that the current political establishment could potentially enact some measure uh, that would be appropriate here, in your opinion? So I think that the tide is changing, and uh, you know, I did some uh, book events in, in D.C. and got to meet quite a lot of people on the Hill. And uh, very definitely, uh, senators want to do something about this. You know, you have uh, Warren, Warner, uh, Cory Booker, Klobuchar, and others, and uh, even the Republicans who often have uh, been perhaps more friendly to, to big business than not are realizing that actually, if you care about competition and you care about free markets, and you know, you're pro-capitalism, uh, what you wa- should want is to ha- reduce industrial concentration to have more. Competition, so I think this is becoming uh, essentially a, a bipartisan issue, um, and uh, I certainly do hope that we'll get some change. Thanks very much for being with us, Jonathan Tepper is the founder of Variant Perception. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and his latest book is entitled "The Myth of Capitalism: Monopolies and the Death of Competition." From Silicon Valley to Wall Street. The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Just yesterday, the California Public Utilities Commission met in order to try to figure out what is next for the top utility in the state of California. That is PG&E. And here to tell us more is Mark Chediak of Bloomberg News. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Chediak. That's C-H-E-D-I-A-K. Mark, just give us a little background as to why P&G is in the focus of regulators related to the recent wildfires. Hi, yes. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so PG&E is uh, California's largest utility. Uh, it's been uh, operating in California for more than 100 years, but it has, uh, within the last 10 to 15 years, quite a checkered past in the state. Um, it's responsible. It was responsible for a natural gas pipeline explosion in 2010, a San Francisco suburb that killed eight people and leveled a neighborhood. Uh, its power lines are um, have been identified as starting many of last year's uh, deadly wine country fires in Northern California last year. And just recently, investigators are looking at its power lines for starting the Camp Fire, which is uh, now considered the most destructive and deadliest fire in California's history. So... Um, as you mentioned yesterday, California's top energy regulator um, is opening. Op- he's questioning basically whether or not uh, the company actually has the uh, safety culture and structure in place to um, to deliver safe and reliable electricity in the state. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that this raises a lot of questions, right? I mean, is this just sort of a cost of doing business for any utility, or is this some kind of rampant negligence that's endemic at, at the utility? And then there's a question, too, what are you going to do? Put them out of business? Who's going to take over? So how are people sort of addressing both of those questions? Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, Michael Picker, who's the president of the California Public Utilities Commission, kind of a he basically spoke to that uh, specifically. What he said yesterday is um, he noted this is, you know, utility that people depend on for reliable electricity. So you can't just put them out of business. He he uh, talked about, uh, you know, fixing or changing PG&E as akin to trying to fix an aircraft in flight. Um, he said, you know, we don't want to crash the plane. So we have to be very careful and very deliberative about how we do this. What is the potential liability for PG&E, or has that not even been figured out? Well, um, first of all, let me make it clear that uh, they haven't determined the cause of this year's campfire. So PG&E's power lines are, are being looked at, but uh, no final determination has been made. If the company is found liable, analysts think um, it could be around $15 billion. That surpasses PG&E's market cap right now. Uh, PG&E is also looking at about $15 billion or more of liability from last year's fires. So that's about $30 billion in liabilities that far exceeds the company's market capitalization. So what's happening now is um, state officials are looking at ways in which um, they can potentially help the utility pay off these massive liabilities. They don't really want the company to go bankrupt. 
Um, that's kind of a worst-case scenario. But they also don't want uh, – the, the public very much doesn't want the utility to get off scot-free either. Well, yeah, I mean, there are a chance of, quote, no bailout, uh, as you as you wrote in, in your latest story. I have to wonder, at this point, can they break the company up? Can they uh, try to – can the state try to uh, give some kind of advantage to competing utilities to try to gain share? I mean, are, what, what are sort of some of the the ways that they could – uh, they could solve this. Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I think uh, every you know state officials are really taking a hard look at this. Some of the options being considered: one, uh, the top energy regulator, Michael Picker, said there could be changes at uh, the company's board. There's some board members who have been with the company for quite some uh, quite a long time, so you could see something like that. Uh, you could the company has a uh, an electric distribution service and also a natural gas distribution service. You could see them breaking up those two pieces of the company. You could even see them breaking up PG&E into smaller sort of regional divisions. So there are a number of potential options. Nothing has been suggested. There There have been no firm suggestions at this point. Mark Chediak, thank you so much for being with us. Mark Chediak is an energy reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from San Francisco. Really interesting to think about. Too big to fail in the context of utilities, especially when you do have, uh, Pim, a a pattern, frankly, here with PG&E, although, of course, it does have to be uh, established what their role was in the campfires. But but really, uh, potentially, this could be a real big problem for California. Well, it could be. Yes, uh, PG&E's market cap right now is just a little bit more than $13.5 billion, and it has dropped by more than 40% this year. Yeah, it's been a really rough year for them. And frankly, uh, for all Californians who are thinking, what are we going to do with them? And we don't want to bail them out. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio is Joe Mysack, editor for the Bloomberg Brief for Municipal Markets. Joe Mysack, let's begin with General Motors and the announcement this week that they will be exiting a variety of locations. They are shuttering a total of five plants, one of them going to be in Canada. What effect is this going to have on municipal finances? Well, you know, whenever you uh, and <clears throat> something, most of these plants are in the uh, they're in the upper Midwest, Ohio and uh, Michigan, uh, of course, one in Canada. You know, there is a an outsized effect in some of these small communities uh, where, uh, you know, these particularly uh, Amanda Albright did a story this week about Lordstown, Ohio. Small town has a factory in it that GM wants to shut. And that is going to have an an outsize impact because of the the village there is 3,300 people, and uh, you know it's it just is this has a knock-on effect. You know, you when you say here we're closing down and we're uh, we're getting rid of uh, you know several hundred people, several thousand people. There's stores that are going to have there's going to be an impact there, and uh, the housing market is going to be impacted. Schools, so yeah, this is it's it's tough when when you have a a company come in and say we're going to close down, and of course, you know maybe some of it is uh, uh, you know a bargaining chip where you say we're shutting down six firms or we're sort of shutting down six factories, and you really have to shut down maybe one. Well, just according to the story. If you look at the total employment in 
just as this example, Lordstown, you're talking about 5% of the total county employment. How do you make up something like that? It's very difficult, especially because in these upper Midwest communities, you don't have a lot of... uh, uh, it's, it's not the same as in the South where you have a lot of factories that are, uh, you know, going to be moving in or want to move in. So when you have one of these long-time um, employers decide that, well, that's it, see ya, it's very difficult to make that up. And this has been really the story of a lot of the Rust Belt, the so-called Rust Belt, right? I mean, this is sort of, we're watching it in real time, sort of as it plays out near the end of this whole thing, or maybe we're in the middle, I don't know. But it's really interesting to think about how that affects municipalities. On a brighter note, though, for municipalities right now, uh, there was a bond rally that was inclusive of municipal bonds after Jay Powell of the Fed spoke. People seem to want to come back to the debt uh, because it seems like the Fed's not going to hike rates as quickly. How sustainable is the rally that we saw, the sort of knee-jerk money into uh, the record flow into BlackRock's ETF, muni bond ETF, and sort of the, the, the initial jolt there? Well, it's funny. The, the thing we talked about uh, earlier this summer about so many bonds being mature you know, going to mature and so many bonds being called away, money looking for a new home. We're setting up for that again in December, January. These are the months where people get money back and have to reinvest it. And the supply, I would say we're probably going to get a little boomlet in December, but it's not going to it's it's not going to overwhelm the uh, the money that's looking for a new home. So that is very constructive. Uh, you know that is one of those factors in the muni market. See it in December, January, and then see it in June and July. What's the likelihood they're going to have to increase rates in order to entice buyers? Not very much. Not much. You know we. Wow. You know when you take a look at the ten year. Uh, uh, bond, the the yield has dropped back down. I mean, I thought for a while we might hit 3% on it. Nah, not gonna. Uh, and, and you know, as I say, this boomlet in supply. I mean, the only place you can go for 3% is Pennsylvania yeah. for the 10-year. The boomlet and, in and supply is not going to uh, result in everybody, you know, all of a sudden coming in and, and saying, well, we have to pay more money to attract investors. Well, one place that might have to, to pay more money is Puerto Rico because there is some talk that they might be returning to the municipal bond market at some point. Uh, how realistic is that at this point? Oh, I saw that uh, that deal on the calendar, and uh, that's actually the exchange bonds for the Government Development Bank, the uh, uh, deal that has restructuring deal that has been set up. So it's not quite a uh, new issue where they're coming in and saying, oh, we're going to send all, sell all new bonds, step right up. Uh, how likely is that right now? I, I, I guess at some point next year, we'll probably see Puerto Rico weigh in and say, well, here's a new bond issue. But uh, gosh, I, who knows how much they'd have to uh, pay in yield there. Joe, is there any estimate just quickly on how much of an effect the fact that banks are not going to be buying and have actually been shedding municipal bonds from their portfolios? Well, as you can see, not much. Uh, you know, the, the yields have been coming down. We, you know, we had, we had a little bit of an impact, and that was purely the Fed, and rates moved higher, and just they're kind of 
swooning again. You know, the, an interesting thing I just want to toss in. The unrated bond market is up about 20% this year in munis. Interesting. Search for... Uh Search for yield. I imagine it yields a little bit more and it's a little bit less liquid. Joe Mysack, editor of the Bloomberg Brief, focused on the municipal bond market for Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for being with us. Coming up, we're going to be talking about luxury and how the concept of luxury is changing ahead of this holiday season. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.